0: This is Clay T. White, Director of UNLV's Oral History Research Center. Support for the Latinx Voices Unveil series is provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities, MGM Resorts International, the Commission for the Las Vegas Centennial, Mark and Marianne Haley, NV Energy, and the Culinary Workers Union Local 226.
1: UNLV's Oral History Research Center presents Latinx Voices Unveiled series. Today's episode is brought to you by the Latinx Voices of Southern Nevada Oral History Project, a UNLV libraries initiative to record the marginalized voices of the Latinx community. This series is produced by the UNLV Rebel Media Group.
2: Hello, everyone. I welcome you all back to the show. This is episode four of our podcast, and today's topic is art, where we will be talking about some of the creative efforts that were born and cultivated here in Las Vegas. My name is Elsa Lopez, and I am joined today with. Monse Hernandez.
3: And Lawrence Las Benitez.
2: Welcome, guys. So, frequently on this show, we talk about this idea of like. Demystifying the reputation of Las Vegas because, well, the three of us are residents here and we know that the casino industry is a facet of this much bigger picture. And because we live here, uh, we know that Vegas is home to a flourishing art scene. And actually, later on in this episode, we will be hearing from, well, it's her name is poet Miss A.V., who actually describes our city as being on the cusp of an artistic renaissance, in her words. So before we get started with everything else, I wanted to hear from the two of you, you know, since we're all consumers of the arts to some extent, um, if you guys could describe the current Las Vegas art scene in just a couple of words.
4: Uh, I think the Las Vegas art scene is growing. I feel like it's in its infancy, like it's growing. And now that we have like a much bigger population, it's becoming more of like a space space rather than a concept. Mm -hmm. And we just need to cultivate it and let it grow and mature into what I'm sure would be, like Miss A.V. said, this like artistic renaissance where we're going to be the it place, yeah. you know, in in the future.
3: So um, I grew up in Las Vegas and and I remember when I was a kid, there really wasn't much art. We didn't have like museums to go to. Like if you go to like L.A., there's a L.A. Museum of Art or like Philly has the Philadelphia Museum. You know, these big like museums where you have these classical pieces of art. You could, I didn't have that growing up uh and i remember the only times you could really see art uh funny enough is if you went to the casinos you know sometimes my parents would take me to the casinos and and funny enough my first introduction to the like roman statues or roman architect is caesar's palace yep. because that's uh where my dad worked uh and that's the casino he was most familiar with so he would take us to go just to walk around or whatever walk the the shop the form shops at caesar's palace and that's when i like remember i seen these and these huge like roman statues and like roman art and of course they're all replicas but that that was my introduction to it so the casinos for for a while uh at least we're like the epicenter for art if you want to go right and it's still true today yeah they have the
4: big name art galleries that Mm -hmm. you know i'm here yeah they have like all these big name galleries like like you mentioned and they have expensive art but at the same time like locals don't really go to the strip right right? we're not tourists in our own city
2: accessible is one way i would describe it
3: i always tell people that uh because i i spent a few years working on the strip weighing tables it's like the only time i come down to the strip is either if i have family in town and they want to do like the vegas thing mm-hmm. or i have to come down here for work uh but now now as i got older and now that we're see- we're seeing more art you know um there's more street art you can mm-hmm. like, and i just like tagging but actual street art i grew up on eastern and stewart and so on that corner there's this mural of pedro infante And it's a beautiful mural, and it's it's been there as long as I can remember. I even walk. I used to walk past it uh, when I would go to school and home. And you would think that like being in the area that it is on the east side, it would have at some point get tagged up. It's never been tagged up ever. No one's ever touched it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it
4: Same like um, on Eastern and Bonanza there's a Cárdenas and on the side there's a La Vicente de Guadalupe Mm -hmm. mural Mm -hmm. like it's a giant you know 20 by 20 mural kind of thing and it's
3: never been touched and Mm -hmm. so I think now there's this respect especially so I think there's a respect to Latino art in our neighborhood that we're starting to like hey this is celebrating our culture let's Mm -hmm. respect this but I think it's appreciation and then I think uh, just in general there's uh, like uh, the art scene is growing I remember first Friday when I was in high school people would be like hey let's go to first Friday but I actually I I didn't even know it was an art festival because no one really talked about that aspect to it at, mm-hmm. at the time and in the crowd I was with kind of used it as an excuse to go partying and that just wasn't my thing. So it's I, not I,
2: that at all. And actually yeah. we're going to talk a lot about first Friday in right. a sec. So I'm glad to know that. I mean, despite where we're coming from, you guys are from a different part of town. We can acknowledge that it's not for lack of appreciation that we don't have art around. Our community does appreciate art. Um, so it's it just not accessible
3: it's yeah. never been, and, and it's becoming more accessible now 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 first Friday is definitely this art thing mm-hmm. where people can go to downtown uh, I gr- I grew up a few blocks away from downtown um, it's it's exploded life is beautiful had a lot to do with yes. that um, so I think, yes, we are going to this renaissance period, or we're getting to it, but once it is very right, we're in this infancy. So I think it's we're seeing the city kind of... Get the ba- ball rolling. <clears throat> ball rolling and balancing it out between this fancy-pantsy art that's only accessible to if you have millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and this street art that anyone can go and buy.
2: These are all great ideas, guys, and I want us to keep that energy, because we're going to talk about accessibility in just a sec. But... Let's jump into the first artist we will be hearing from today. Um, All of these artists that we will be talking about reside in our beautiful city. But let's move on to the first theme, which is art as a means to symbolize identity. And we're going to begin with hearing a clip from local artist Justin Favela, uh, also known as Fabi Fab, from his podcast Latinos Who Lunch and the Art People's Podcast. He is a pineta artist whose pieces are internationally recognized. And in this first clip, he is talking about art and his Latinidad.
5: Yeah, um, it was um, it was in college. I was I was gonna make a piece about my identity and piñata paper was like the making something a piñata uh, i think was like a shortcut to like symbolize my latinidad so i started making piñatas like as objects uh in the beginning and i quickly got bored with that so then i switched to thinking of the piñata as a medium and not as an object So then that kind of freed me to do like paintings or they're more like mosaics or collages than paintings. And then that that um, naturally transferred to doing installation work.
2: Um, There's a second clip I want us to hear where he expands on this further, but he also explains some of the inspiration behind his newest installation titled Sorry for the Mess.
5: But a lot of it is also very. I like to work intuitively too, like with this show at the Barrack right now, for example. Like the wet floor signs, that was an idea I got like the like a month before the show opened, um, just from walking around casinos and and seeing wet floor signs and what that meant or what what that symbolized to me. Like, oh wow, the the uh, visibility of maintenance. This is really the only time you see that in a casino is with a wet floor sign, Um, because they even try to hide their employees by having them wear very neutral uniforms and things, you know? So, a big yellow sign uh, means so much more than people think, right? So, to me, seeing a wet floor sign is like, oh, that's like, maybe my tia's around, you know what I mean? (laughs) Which, yeah. And the casino's thinking, we don't want to get sued. That's all they're thinking by putting that out, you know? Um, and like the Muppet Pile for example, that is a piece that I've had in my head for years, like I want to make that piece and this was just the opportunity to do that because it tied in all these ideas of like uh, me watching TV while my mom cleaned people's houses uh, or the party at the Harris where I met Big Bird and then my tia, you know Ramiro did a painting of my tia who was there for that experience with me so it all kind of like, tied in together. So it just depends.
2: As someone who sat in on that interview, I can see how his medium, the piñata paper, is meant to represent his heritage. And in the exhibit, which is featured here in our university's Barrick Museum, he also pays homage to his childhood as a Vegas native. So firstly, I'm Assuming you both have been to the museum, you guys have seen his newest piece, both of you. So we,
3: yeah? I think we both went uh, the day he opened it. Yes, we yeah. did the
4: awesome. walkthrough with him, which was
6: I do Tell us about world. your
4: thoughts. So, like, at some point he had me crying because I'm like, oh, my God, your experience has been, like, my experience. But to see it, like, in an art, like, gallery was, like, crazy because, you know, you go as a little kid to all these, like, artistic and cultural spots, but there's no place for our culture, right? Like, it's all, like, you know, mainstream American culture and stuff like that. And so, like, to see it displayed in such a magnitude where, you know, it's in the museum, like, that was crazy. And when he talked about that, he talked about his, like, personal experience and, like, the inspiration for everything that he did and how he used things, you know, that were, you know, I guess disposable things that he created into art, That was like incredible. And at some point, like I was crying. I'm like, he he gets it. He really does. Right. And he's putting, you know, our culture and our experience, most importantly, out there and making it art. And that was just like overwhelming for me. Like it was it was great. It was that was the first time that i've ever been to a museum that it wasn't like folk art right like yeah. like you know how they classify our art as like folk art because you know it's how can it be cl- like classical art mm-hmm. or like mainstream art right that was the first time where it wasn't classified um folk art and it was you know modern contemporary art
3: i mean to me that that art installation hit home hard uh and the reason being for that is uh growing up my parents uh worked and the casinos. Uh, my, my dad, for the last 25 years, has worked inside Caesars Palace as a line cook. And my mom, for about the last 15 years, has been working uh, as a line cook. At Planet Hollywood. And then myself, I actually spent five years uh, weighing tables as I was doing my undergrad. So I, I, I started as a busboy and, and and worked myself to waiting until I graduated college. So I am very, right. So it's hard to meet a Latino in this town that isn't either in construction or working on the strip as a custodian or as a waiter or as a cook or whatever. Uh, but I spent time in that environment. I have friends dear friends that I made in in those five years uh, who worked in the, who still work in the industry, who that industry helps the Latino. Uh, I say helps with like an asterisk on it, right? Cause right. It, cause they very much do exploit us, very much exploit our labor, but it, it has helped a lot in the community, you know, buy their homes, buy their cars, provide for their family. Um,
2: it's important. It's
3: regardless. important. Yeah. And so, you know, going there and, like, watching this installations of, like, I mean, that was my family, that was my friends, that was me, like weighing tables cleaning i mean i can't tell you how many times i had to clean up uh especially when i was busting tables how many times i had to clean up after a tourist after they knocked over their Mm -hmm. beer and and be apologetic about oh my god and they're like oh like don't worry about it we got it right and and justin hits it right on the nail the casino doesn't want you to be seen you're there to serve Uh, the guest and that's it. They don't want your opinion. They don't want you to like the only time they care about your opinion. And this is goes for the casino and the tourist is when they ask you, where can I get the latest deal or what's the thing to do in town? That's the one time they want to see you. And that's if you're a server, right? Mm. Uh, If you're a custodian, and there's almost this hierarchy in casinos Mm. of like who tourists want to talk to custodians and people who put up the wet floor signs are right at the bottom.
4: Yeah, and it goes into the whole thing where like the only time I ever saw someone that looks like me or that talks the same language as me in a casino was like the custodians, mm-hmm. the maids, the ones that were cleaning the room after the people that right, were there. Cause the
3: the pit bosses, the party hosts for the most part tend to be uh American, you know, or, or Anglo I should say. Um, so just to go walk into this museum and dad was just like, man, these are my friends. These are my like it was it just hit home. And that, that was one of the made me cry. It just made me cry.
2: I mean, it's as he said in that clip, he thinks of his mother or he thinks of his aunt. And that was what was difficult for me to hear, because I worry as well, as you mentioned, Lawrence, about the exploitation that goes on and the stuff that we don't hear about perhaps because the casino is hiding it, perhaps also because our parents don't want to tell us. Um, And then we are in this unique um, opportunity where because of our job, we get to hear about these stories. So when we do some of our interviews, because we want all of the Latinx community, we will listen to the stories of the housekeepers and of porters and people who work in the casino industry. And I think that's some of the most rewarding work that we do and it's good to know that Justin also um to him it is important that we highlight marginalized voices and he shares a lot of our values so to have him create something like that to know that he is coming from a space where we a lot of us have lived it's yeah as you'd mentioned very powerful so yeah same thing i resonated with the exhibit a lot i felt like the exhibit symbolizes a lot of the feelings that we feel as like first-generation immigrants you know first generation to go to college knowing that our parents are working so hard to help us move forwards to know their story as well is it's just paramount to understanding one another
4: yeah and I feel like he he really captures like our parents experience like if Mm -hmm. anything when you go down to the barrack and you see this installation you're seeing your parents as first-generation kids like this is what our parents do. Mm-hmm. Like, when we think about, like, our parents' generation, like, you know, for the most part, they're the porters. They're, you know, the cleanup crew, that kind of stuff. And so it was really nice to see that aspect be highlighted in such a positive way. Because yeah, like, it's
2: honest work, and mm-hmm. I'm tired of certain people trampling on it or thinking lesser Mm
4: -hmm. yeah exactly like they've always been at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to like positions and stuff like that and there's jobs that nobody else wants right Mm -hmm. and here goes the latinx community and does it with pride because like lauren says it puts food on the table it it you know it helps kids get through college it helps families provide for you know the children and so I feel like his installation, his artwork, his stance, the reason behind everything that he does is very much like our story.
2: It's you know? different because, as you'd mentioned, it's not its not folk art, but it's also not a Mexican art exhibit. It's a different facet of Latinx uh, life. So not, you know, here are some pieces from Mexico or Guatemala or stuff that you would assume would be in a Latinx quote-unquote exhibit, or maybe this is just me thinking that that's what others would assume, but no, this is very much a different perspective on our lives. It's definitely representative of our culture, not necessarily in the sense that this is a museum with, you know, Mexican pieces or Guatemalan pieces. It is the Latinx experience, but I love his take on it. Um, And Justin is one of the many successful people who were raised here in our community. And at the moment, his work is featured in loads of places, including the new East Las Vegas Library. Uh, He was featured in a series there as well called 28th Street, Images Past and Present. And next, we will be hearing from the creator of the series, photographer and UNLV professor Checo Salgado. Here, he talks about his series, in the East Las Vegas Library, and as well as what that library in general means to the community.
7: What I hope what happens is that other people from the outlining communities come in and get involved there. So these kids are still you know it's still a bad neighborhood and they need hope. So I think by these people coming in and donating their services, whether it's teaching a class or talking or working doing a workshop, that they're benefiting these kids because these the, the prior kids didn't have that opportunity. You'd have to kind of go and find it somewhere, you know, and a lot of them ended up on the streets. Uh, Some of these kids or these people that are in my older photos are on the streets homeless in that same block. They still live there, but now they're homeless, you know, and I don't want to see that for these kids. Um, And we've never had that opportunity on this side of town. So I I really wanted to be successful. And that's why that that was my idea for the show, Um, because my friend uh, Darren is the curator for all the galleries in town for the library. And I go, hey, I see that they're building a library on 28th Street. I go, who's going to be the first show? He goes, oh, I don't have anybody. You want to do something? And I go, yeah. So my idea was to get go back and find these people that grew up there and bring them back to that community so they'd you know, hey, this is still your community. You grew up here. Be a part of this library. So that was the idea, is taking pictures of them at their old, uh, in front of their old houses or if they were still there, but also getting their old photos so they felt like yeah, we did grow up here. We did have a community. We lived in government homes. We were poor, but we all hung out together. They actually had a better community than our side of town, you know, which was a few blocks away. Like, they actually, um, as my friend Serafine says, he goes, we had to play with each other because our backyards were the same, everybody's backyard. So we all got to hang out with each other. But um, that's what I've been pushing. I was like, you guys need to come back and, and, and help this, this library prosper.
2: Checo is an amazing person. He's photographed Nevada at all angles, He's photographed wildlife, the cityscape, and the people here. So anyone who wants to get a better understanding for Nevada could really take from his perspective and looking at his photos. Um, you guys have been to the library, and you've probably seen his series there. So I want to so, get not only your thoughts on that, but also just what that library means.
3: So this interview is really special for me because for two reasons. Uh First, uh, it talks about the neighborhood I grew up in. I grew up in Lee's Las Vegas. I grew up adjacent to 28th Street. They didn't um, necessarily grow up on 28th Street, but I, I grew up alongside it. And second, uh, Checo is actually the first Latino instructor I I had at UNLV, A mm-hmm. very first person that I encountered that looked like me. And I remember when I first walked into this classroom, I was like, oh, shoot, there's a Latino teaching this class? And I paid attention so much more. And and I got into photography. And then I got, I I started talking to Checo and and got to know him a little bit more. And I find out he grows up in the same neighborhood I did. Uh, We went to the same middle school. So that was like, yo, someone who grew up on the east side, went to school on 28th Street, made it. Uh, And that just inspired me so much. Coming back to this interview, I mean, so... Like Chico said in the, in the clip, the East Side, depending who you talk to, doesn't have the best reputation in town, right? It's always had these issues. This, this side of town has always had these issues. And never, nothing gets fixed. Generation, generation is coming in. And, and unfortunately, the neighborhood stays the same. And so, you know, 20, like, you know, like I said, East Side has this reputation. But then 28th Street has its own reputation. That's, that's the place where you don't want to go. At night, right. So that, just to give you an idea, like people on the east side have this connotation of 28th Street, right. But then now with the library being in there, so Checo I, I think mentions that there used to be projects on that section where where the library sits. on. I, I actually used to cut through those projects to get home from school. And so this library means a lot to me, and and Checo's project is amazing because he went out and and he's like these people used to live here, and now they're doing these amazing things. And of course, not everyone's a winner, you know. Unfortunately, some of, some of us don't escape the perils of the hood, you know. As much as we try to, sometimes we just we can't. But regardless of that, the next generation, especially on the east side needs to see that representation, it needs to see that people came from the same barrio as they did and went on and did great things. My hope is that my generation and maybe a couple ones after me are the last ones that have to go out and find uh, opportunities out on their own. I'm hoping generations after me will have this library.
4: We to help go each to. other out and right. that's
2: amazing that As he mentioned, it's the people who grew up there that will give back to their community. Yeah,
4: and we're starting to see it now, too. Like, Justin Favela was featured in that uh, installation, and his portrait is there at the library. And so, like, the whole thing that Checo said, like, come back and give to community, Justin's already doing that. Olivia Diaz is another one that's featured, and she's right now um, city councilwoman for that district for East Las Vegas. And so... These people that came out of 28th Street are actually giving back to their community. And so it's very important for us not only to to see representation in, you know, people that made it out, but also that those people come back and, you know, pay some respects, pay some respects and pay their their dues back to like the community that helped them for so long. You know, and Mm -hmm. that library where it's at and just how it was catered to the Latino community is very much a symbol of hope like in this like forgotten neighborhood that no one wants to go through in this forgotten neighborhood where there's lack of resources you have the most high-tech library in the entire city it really was catered for this community and the entire library is bilingual so like all the signs are bilingual and so like it's not only just a library You know, it's a resource and it's a resource that's bilingual that actually is accessible to the community that lives in it.
2: Yeah, it truly shows that the people who are most invested in this library are invested for that same feeling of this is where I'm from. Um, And yeah, like Checo said, that's why community members need to be forefronting this stuff because they're the ones who know what their community needs. So. Let's talk about the epicenter, at least in the opinion of many, the epicenter of the artistic scene, the Las Vegas Arts District, which is located just south of downtown Las Vegas. And here you can find local art, and you might even be lucky enough to chat with some of the artists themselves. And we have uh, we host a monthly event down there, which is called First Friday. And to summarize it for... Those who don't know, it's kind of a a party block-esque situation with food, uh, live entertainment. uh, You can buy local art, and it's just got that downtown scene. So while the event has undergone lots of change over the years, it still holds a nice place in our community as it attempts to make art more accessible to the general public. And we've been talking about that a little bit. That accessibility is what we're going to be hearing right next. From local artist Eric Avil, who is known for his Dia de los Muertos paintings,
8: did a first Friday and it was just so successful. I you know I, I love it. I love doing the setting up a booth outdoors. It's just it's nicer. I mean I do like having a, a spot in a gallery, but being outside it's more. It feels like it's more for the people. Uh, you get you get people get excited. That it's like oh I can afford this, this is a ten or twenty dollar piece, and it does, they don't feel intimidated when they see you know. They go into the gallery and see, you know, the the pieces going for thousands of dollars. And I still have the nice, the elegant pieces, but, you know, I also have, I I have something for everybody. And so I like being outside because it's just, uh, it feels, it feels like it brings out the, the more, uh, the more everyday crowd and not just the big spenders because was, I know what it's like to you know be tight on money and to see something that you like and not be able to have it you know it's not that uh not that I I think people should be entitled to everything that they want but it's just you know it's not a, it's not difficult for me to make something to share the art with somebody and if they can uh, if I can inspire them or if they can get something from my painting something personal from it I it makes me feel good that I was able to to share something with them like if they're influenced by it, or if they if they if they feel the piece, I think it's that's more important than the money. That's what I want more than anything is to feel a connection between people. I think that's important.
2: Uh, both of you have told me that you've purchased some of his pieces. Do you guys want to describe what his um, what his style is like?
3: So I own a piece uh, that where it's uh, it's a skull and kind of your. If you think of the Mexican Revolution, if you think of Pancho Villa and think of Zapata and, and their attire that they're usually in, uh, the piece I own is a skull figure in that kind of attire, revolution, Mexican revolutionary attire. Um, I mean, to me, it was just the first time I, I encountered uh, Eric was actually uh, a at, at Dia de los Muertos uh, Day of the Dead Festival and Spring. Springs Preserve. Okay. And actually in the interview later on, I, fi- I found out because I was sitting on the interview. That was actually his first show ever. The first time I encountered him was his first time he ever decided to go out and, and sell pieces. So that was really cool. Um, and that's where I bought that piece. And so to me, it's just I've always loved the school like imagery, uh, especially like the the sugar schools. Um, it's exploded in popularity since mm-hmm. Coco. Um, I just, I love the aesthetic of it. I love the skulls and, and it's this mixture of death and life and things that we celebrate.
2: People who don't understand the de los Muertos or people who are outside of our culture may think of, you know, the skulls and, and all of this is having a sense of morbidity to it, like being yeah. morbid. So I love that in this interview, he talks a lot about, um, where he's coming from with these pieces. And if you've seen them, Monte maybe you'll describe some too.
4: Yeah, so the one that I have is a, a skeleton and it has, like, flowers coming out, like, like growing out, like, wings.
2: Like the ribcage, right? And
4: the ribcage one, yeah. And he, like, there's flowers in the rib cage, and it's kind of symbolizing life in a new way. And it's, like, a beautiful art piece. You guys should all check him out. He's, he's a, available online. Yeah, he's available online and he has, like, all social media. So just look up his name. He's He's there. But, like, that art piece kind of, like it looks like a sugar skull but it's not a sugar skull but it it, you know where it's coming from and like Lauren says I have a hard time describing why I connect to this painting but I just whenever I see it I'm like oh you know that's my culture right like I can see it in this beautiful piece of art.
3: I really like what Eric says and this idea of you know if you want the small print I have the ten dollar one or if you want to buy my fancy one we have it it and I think it's we see this with Latino artists because we've been there, right? Like we remember growing up going to museums and, and like never being able to afford anything that's in there. And I think, and I don't want to speak for Eric, but, but I'm sure he's coming out of a place of where he remembers not being able to buy a big fancy piece. So for me, First Friday, when I started going, I've always known a First Friday. Uh, but I, again, when I was younger, I never really understood what it was. And, and then once I got older, I was like, oh, this is an art place where I can go buy art and I can see all kinds of art. Art that probably, you know, it's a good launching point for local artists here in town. But for the most part, it's if you're starting out, this is a good place where you just start. And and as as a customer or as a client, I guess you can say – it's it's cool for me to go down there and just see what's going on, see what people are, are painting about what they they see as prevalent. Like once the Golden Knights came into town, you saw a lot of Golden Knights art, right? You saw an artist, uh, Nino, I can't remember his name, last name, but he launched a big career with painting the Misfits, uh, the Las Vegas Misfits that came out of First Friday. Uh, so First Friday has served to me as a launching point. Like if you want to see what's what's the latest in art, First Friday is a good place to go.
2: I'm wanting to move us forward with our next topic, which is Latinx art representation versus tokenism. So another heavy theme. Um, This is these two themes we've been navigating through the majority of our interviews here um, because we all know that the media has a hard time grappling with the Latinx stories and even like with Latinx artists and actors. But yeah, there are a lot of quality Latinx artists out there who we need to support. And in this next clip, we will be hearing from one of them. Her name is Modestina Givera, and she is a director based out of the Dominican Republic. In this scene, she is describing the decade long process that has been creating her short film titled Enchiquillo Grita Libertad.
6: La escribí, la dirigí, y preparé parte de los actores, casi todo, para que trabajaran esa película. Eran mis estudiantes. En Nueva York, me llevé 20 estudiantes. De, y ah, y después eh, diseñar los trajes. <risa> <risa> diseñar los trajes. Tú sabes que los trajes indígenas, pues los pintamos con pintura, así eran como taparrabos que llevaban los indios. Pero los, eh, los españoles, las mujeres españolas llevaban unos trajes grandes, así anchotes, con la manga así, con una, de la época del año 1528. Entonces. Mira, mija, todavía yo estoy luchando con esa película, ya tengo más de 10 años haciendo esa película, y ahora en Santo Domingo me prometieron la industria del cine, ayudarme para la la postproducción, que es ponerle la música, sonido, eh, los los títulos, los subtítulos en inglés, porque es en español la película, entonces le van a poner subtítulos en inglés, la música, todo eso, pero ya está filmada. Y aunque todavía quiero hacer una escena, si me dan el dinero allá, quiero hacer una escena que me faltó porque era muy costosa. Es un baile español del año 1528, donde la gente sale bailando y hay una pelea y una escena muy linda, pero era muy costosa. Porque salen como 20 bailarines en, en haciendo el baile y, y van todo vestido de, ya tú sabes, un traje, traje muy, costoso. muy costoso que hay que, hay que hacerle. Y entonces, por eso no lo había dicho, pero si me ayudan, sí lo voy a hacer, sí lo voy a hacer, pero muy, muy, muy difícil hacer una película, lanzarse uno a hacer una película, bueno, Salma Hayer, que dijo en una entrevista que yo vi, que ella duró 15 años para hacer a Frida, y Salma tiene mucho dinero, y tiene amigos con muchísimo dinero, y ella duró 15 años preparando esa película, yo dije, ah, pues mira, yo tengo 10 preparando la mía, no, eso no es nada, (laughs) Yo soy
2: pobre. <laughs> in that clip, we heard Modestina Givera, also known as Tina. She likes to go by Tina. She was talking about her movie and how it has been such a process. Uh, she talks about it at length in her interview. But what's cool here is that we have a brown director with brown actors and a plot that is based around her culture, which is not, you would think, not as uh, rare as it is. But... Unfortunately, um, we have this current climate in the entertainment industry, where we're dealing with, you know, this is the era of brownface, but it's not just that, you know, we have white directors who are telling our stories, and even when we do get a cast that is Latinx, it's a lot of times more white Latinx people, and, like, right off the top of my head, I'm thinking of all the telenovelas that are supposed to be our stories, but they feature very European-looking people, Um, so... That goes into a whole other conversation about colorism. But what I'm trying to say is that we have a lot going on that is against our favor. And people like, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Guillermo del Tojo, even these household names can't save it. We need more than just that. So with all of this being said, what do you guys think about Tina's story?
3: I mean, I think it does a good job of illustrating the work that goes into to this, I think it's very easy for people to go, well, if you want more people in, in brown movies, go make them, go make them. But mm-hmm. it's a lot of work. Yep. You know, and it's hard if you don't have the access to it. She Again, she touches on that. She has limited resources, right? And she even says, you know, Salma Hayek, who has all the resources, has trouble in making films. So it kind of shows that it, it's not as easy as just go out and do it yourself. You you need help. Um, you know, in my undergrad, I, I studied media and and... So I was very into like studying pop culture and seeing how we were represented. And truth is, we're not very much on screen ever, at least and in And if Mace. we
4: are, are stereotypes,
3: right? There's stereotypes. There's this tokenism, this idea where we're only in there because they needed a brown face. Um, but it's very rare to, you know, I I mean I can't think of a movie right now off the top of my head that I feel does a good job of like telling our stories that was directed by a brown man that was has a, a all brown cast and centers like that's a tough like
4: Black Panthers clothes but not but really it, but it, it's a superhero movie it's not real you know
3: <laughs> right and actually I was going to touch on that like and I'm, I'm speaking when I say that I'm speaking around Latino yeah mm-hmm. like uh, culture right like the, uh, the African American culture I think is doing a fantastic job with it you yeah. know Black Panther did amazing Um Jordan Peele with yes. what he's putting out is doing great. So the African American culture I feel is ahead of us in that aspect as yes, far as getting a, a getting us in getting ourselves into that space but I, I without a doubt I feel the African American community is ahead of us in that aspect of getting us into representation spaces.
2: Mm-hmm. Actually Tina um, in, the, in this clip she mentions the issue with funding and then she also mentions that there's a film industry in the Dominican Republic and she says it is is called Pro Capital Film Studios. One of the biggest helpers in getting this movie um, the amount of resources it needs because it gives money so that people from the Dominican Republic can make movies there. So they're trying to get more movies made out of that studios. Therefore, they will fund it more.
3: Right. So, I, And I think that touches on the fact that for those who have made it, mm-hmm. and, I, and the Latino community is really good at doing this, but for the people who have made it, they almost have a responsibility of teaching those who are trying to and helping those who are, yeah. are trying to. to Which is
4: back. why like, I really admire Guillermo del Toro. Like, yeah. He has set up scholarships and academies for film animators and all these great things. In Mexico, right? And so, like, he is one, like, he he champions for his community. And he opens doors because he knows that there's no doors to open because there's nothing, right? right? So he had to set it up.
3: And I mean, you can see it. Once you pump in the money and invest in our artists, we pay off. Because let's Definitely. let's think back at the last four Oscars ceremonies. Who were like the the best directors oh, yeah. have all been Mexican. Yeah. In the last like three or four years, have all been Mexican.
2: So yeah, I think we can all agree that positive representation is important. The key word there being positive. So we're gonna switch the conversation over to something we touched on, but are going to delve further into, which is tokenism. So furthering the conversation on representation, Monse, would you like to introduce this next clip?
4: Yeah, so I had the opportunity to interview Ace Daniels, who is a senior conference sales manager at The Wynn, but he is also a local theater director and actor. And so Ace Daniels really talks about representation in theater and how, you know, watching this particular play that he talks about really opened his eyes and made him appreciate his culture and the importance of representation so let's listen to it real quick
9: so i uh, as as what i noticed i think it's another reason why i appreciate um my culture so much um as an artist i noticed that Our culture is very underrepresented in theatrical literature. Very underrepresented, you know. I took a class on gay plays, gay literature. So, like, okay, there's representation there. There's another class offered on um, plays that fall into the African-American culture. So there's that whole canon, you know, and there is context there. But I'm like, why aren't there any stories about Latinos, Except for West Side Story, which is so dated, you know what I mean? It's crazy. There and aren't the actors ruined themselves. Yes, you know, <laughs> and that really began to bother me. And I think it came from a place where I realized that there aren't there there is not enough opportunity for me as a performer because you have to be very honest with yourself with what is my type, what is my look. When I walk into an audition room, how do other how do directors see me? And I have a very specific look. Of a very specific look. So people tell me like, "Oh, you look like you can, you know, pass for different ethnicities. Like you're versatile in that way." Mm-hmm. But still, you know, when you look at the page, and you know, I mean, at least for me as an artist, I think if race is a is, is a topic in the s- story, if it is a, pre- a theme, you need to be true to the race in terms of casting wise. Like if it's if the character, it, I, I'm just going to use hairspray for an example. In Hairspray, there is a theme of racism. So it's important that you have Caucasian actors and you have African American actors, because you have to serve that theme, that storyline. You know, in West Side Story, that's another good example. Racism is a theme between the Caucasians and the Puerto Ricans. So I think you have to have actors who look Puerto Rican. But my point in this is that when you look at like the how broad theater is, it just there weren't enough stories about. Latinos and then my best friend told me about oh, there is this play off Broadway that you have to listen to the album and I don't remember how he got the album because it wasn't the official cast recording but he sent me like a bootleg copy copy of the cast recording it was in the heights and this was like when it was on off Broadway it hadn't even gone on to win the, the Tony Awards and, and all that stuff that that came And I got it, and I was like, okay, and I never even listened to it. I was like, whatever. It went on to win the Tonys, but it still wasn't in my periphery, you know? wasn't until I saw the Performing Arts Arts High School do In the Heights. I will never forget. I knew that they were mounting it. This was the first time it was being done here. And even though it was at a high school level, this is the Performing Arts High School, and they do things at a very high level. I took my mother to that performance. and I don't take my mother to see much theater. But for this, I felt like I knew what I was gonna be walking into in terms of the storyline. And are you familiar with In the Heights? Yeah, she and your parents landed in Washington oh, Heights. Yes. Won't so Won't there was great. knowing that my parents, that's part of their backstory, I was like, I should take my mother to this. I think she would appreciate it. We sat front row, and it was I like I will never forget like the the emotions that I felt watching that production. It was a well done production, but it was also just hearing the story, hearing the music, and seeing my culture. My culture as a Dominican represented on stage brought such pride, you know? And I'll never forget like my mom like she the, the there was a character called Piragua and she was so she told me she's like, I remember that guy. I remember seeing that guy when she lived in Washington Heights. And that stuck with me, but I was so proud that like my culture was being rep- like on stage is, you know, we, we've seen Latinos represented on film, on movie, not enough, but we've seen them, but not in authentic way. We're always like the drug dealer or, you know, being in the projects. And here I was listening to a story where we were represented as humans, as normal people, and represented in such a beautiful way, like it really, it, 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 it showed the, the, the joy that we as Latinos feel. It just, it took our culture and put it on stage and celebrated who we are. It celebrated rather than say they're the drug dealer, they're the prostitute, they're like the stereotypical Latina with five kids, you know, it it, it just ignored all of that and just depicted us as humans in a beautiful way. And I felt so much pride. And that moment I left, I I kid you not, I left that and I told myself that at that moment, that became my dream show. I said, I'm going to do this show someday. I'm going to produce this someday. I mean, and what I meant is like, As I'm telling myself, some way, shape, or form, at some point in my life, I'm going to be involved in this production, whether that means I'm on stage, whether that means I'm directing it, whether that means I'm the one somehow finding the money to put this together, whether that means I'm just backstage pushing senior around. I don't care, but I have to be a part of this production. Because it speaks to so much of who I am culturally. And that's when I really began to become very proud of my culture, is at that moment. Speak your truth into existence, and the universe <laughs> will listen. Four years later, I'm. I told you about Beauty and the Beast, and how I was. I was thrown in as an understudy, and I'm learning that in three days. And I'm backstage with the choreographer, um, learning choreography like very frantically. And I hear the pre-show announcements. They were announcing the next season, and they said, "Oh, and we're doing In the Heights next season." And I literally stopped dead, like with what I was doing. I said. Are, uh, did I just hear what I what, what I thought I heard? Like are, are they're doing in the Heights next year here, and at that moment I knew I was like, I'm gonna be in that show. I'm gonna be in that show. I literally like, I remember I went home and or because I, I plan my my calendar. I am very very structured and scheduled with everything else. I cleared my calendar to make room in my life for this show. I told my husband, just so you know, I'm gonna be in that show. This is happening.
2: I think a big part of representation is not just us being featured in like more, um, I don't want to use stereotypical because obviously we don't see it that way, but in movies that are definitely more like telling of uh, the Latinx story, it's very valid for us to want to see movies that are like Ariel or like Friends, but with people that look like us because it is a different perspective. And if we're going to talk about representation, then we need to acknowledge that it's not always going to be about race. sometimes it does really just need to be us being multifaceted people where that's not the core of our of the plot line
3: right And then like uh, he touched on West Side story, which is right like the first Latino latino in quotes where
2: rita moreno won her oscar
4: from yeah right
3: but then if you look into the history of that movie the half of the cast was white they just spray them, and and that's even rita
4: moreno right
3: so yeah like you know it's not just enough to represent us give us our stories in in latino you know but also cast us in the roles that were meant for us Mm -hmm. um but going you know back to theater like we need more representation we need more latino writers
2: You know, we've been having uh, a conversation about representation for a while. And while we all agree that positive representation is important, uh, let's switch over to maybe the not so great bits of representation, a.k.a. tokenism. So in this next clip, we will hear from Dr. Emmanuel Ortega, professor of art history. He's also known as Babelito from Latinos Who Lunch. And in this next clip, he talks about tokenism in academia.
10: Yeah, um, I'm a token Latino in all of the art history departments, and I'm always going to be that, but but I am the face of representation in the classroom, and that's exactly what we were mentioning before, and I think understanding those roles is important when you go into academia, because I had no idea. I had no idea what I was, was going to... What I was getting into. Otherwise, I don't think I would have done it. And that's what's scaring a lot of kids. Then now they understand that, or when they hear the podcast, they understand that. But I wouldn't discourage anybody not to go to grad school. You know, like I mean, I think I mean it changed my life, so it was very important. Um, It's very complicated. It's very very complicated because even though we many times are tokens in a lot of these departments, just like we tokens in a lot of media you know um sometimes you have to start somewhere and i think it's necessary so i think my presence in uic um it's loud it's loud and i've made it so you know my classes are popular and it's it's i don't think it has a lot to do with me it's just the fact that mexican is teaching mexican art you know
2: and this kind of brings me into uh the next topic So these conversations we've been having about representation, tokenism, even cultural appropriation, it's difficult to decide where we draw the line. Um, So I want to know from you guys if you have any personal experiences with feeling like you're the token something.
3: I I do. And it's in the same space as uh, Bablito. You know, I I teach English at uh, one of the local high schools here, and I'm actually the only Latino in the English department. And it's good and it's bad. It's good because in one aspect, uh, the school I teach at uh, has a big Latino population. So, yes, my my students get to come to a classroom with a Latino. And unfortunately, I'm still teaching – uh, the Anglo canon, because that's what the district has approved and I can't teach anything else. Uh, but at least I get to twist it a little bit and give it my own twist with my own thoughts on it. And they get to hear a perspective that isn't the same perspective that they can get to, right? Uh, but then uh, there are moments where, like, being the only Latino, and, and I and I actually work with a couple Latinas, but I am only the only Latino there. But I mean, Pablito, like... hits it on the head we if we want to break these spaces where we're not represented in academia is a big one where we're not represented as well right like uh i always tell people i can count in one hand uh how many latino uh teachers professors i've had in my whole academic career and for my kids i know i'm going to be the first one on their list of first latino teachers they've ever had in their academic career and unfortunately it's when they're halfway through their high school career but yeah, Bablito hits it on the head. Like we we have if we want to break into these spaces, we have to start somewhere. And if you're the first one, you're gonna be a token. Now, whether that's a negative thing or a positive thing, it's it's on you, right? Yeah. Um, the
4: the difference between tokenism and exploitation.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. And so we have to walk this fine line of like how may, how often am I willing to be the token? And, but if me being the token educates you into to something better, then okay, I don't mind it.
4: So I think Babelito does a great job of talking about how, like, just because you're Latino or Latinx, you're gonna be tokenized,
2: right? So is it almost like a necessary evil?
4: Yes, especially in places where that's... You know, that's or we're not... the first ones to break into that space, we're, yeah. Um, so, and like, it's... for lack of a better term, a white space, right? Mm-hmm. right? And so, like, when you're the first one there, you're gonna be tokenized, you're gonna be scrutinized as well,
2: right? And it's so... a lot of weight to carry, mm-hmm. knowing that you are the representation for all of your culture, apparently, yeah. right?
3: And 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 because of that weight, I sometimes don't blame people for, for those being
2: tired all the time. Well, not for being <laughs>
3: tired, but. Uh, for Latinos who have you know white privilege and who can pass, sometimes I don't blame them for b- being not claiming the Latinidad because that's a burden to like have to be the one that always and and it, sometimes it's easier to like just be like that's not me.
4: So you go into like the spiral of like, okay, why is it bad to be a token, right? Of like representation of your entire culture like you're representing your entire culture just for like existing in that white space but at the same time there's a lot of cons to like being a token but also a lot of pros because you get to determine what that means right it's being a big
2: responsibility it's a big
4: responsibility but you have a lot of leeway in that you need you can define what you wanna highlight about yourself, about your culture, and that kind of stuff, and so it's great to be part of that groundbreaking work and you know every job I've ever had, I was a minority, I was one, if not the only Spanish speaker there, and so like the yeah, that fall um as part of my responsibility, right? Translating and interpreting for people and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, there hasn't been a moment in my life where I wasn't a token in some way, shape or form, right? And like, especially now with like this project, right? It feels like just being part of this project, you're a token right now of the university, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. If anything, that's a great thing. But there is a thin line between tokenization, and exploitation of being a token.
2: All of this stuff that we've been talking about has become very personal. We're talking about a lot of the issues that um, can be, in a sense, the way I think of it, represented through art. And that's going to be the next theme, art um, as a means of addressing trauma. Because art, for those who create it, know that it can be very therapeutic. Um, And we're going to be hearing next from poet Ashley Vargas, also known as Miss A.V., as she talks about the real-world issues that she writes into poetry.
0: What started off as just, like, let me tell my story for my own therapeutic, you know, sort of thing um, has really become a source of power to women that I could have never anticipated. I could have never anticipated. And, you know, and so many people will come, even if they're, like, bawling, crying. They will come. They'll ask if they can hug me just because in that moment they don't feel like they're alone, that it's not just them. You know, and I spend a lot of time um, doing poetry in schools on the east side, Um, high schools, middle schools, charter schools. And I tell these stories. I tell, you know, the story about, you know, my sister and her being in this wildly abusive relationship and how I don't even know who my sister is anymore. I talk about, you know, being Latin and, and dealing with the the racism of my ex-husband being black and what that meant and the things my family would tell me and, and even getting divorced and them telling me, well, you should have known better. Like, if you would have married a Latin guy, then this shit wouldn't have happened to you. You know, and when, at what point are you going to learn to not date? black people anymore you know so i i talk about these things so for me you know there are moments that i am in the community talking to them doing speaking engagements trying to um bring awareness and strength to people but i would say more so through my art and through my bravery to tell my story um helps other people also be brave. And that has been probably the biggest revelation of my work that it's not just me anymore. It's not just my story.
2: So, from here we could go in many different directions. Um a lot of the artists we've been talking about will, you know, use their art as a forms of symbolizing their identity. This is yet another way we can create art taking the struggles that we deal with and turning them into a form of almost like a, a political thing where we will reach out to others and say, hey, we're coming from this same space. And that's something that we see a lot within like these Latinx interviews. So I guess what I want to ask you guys is after all of today, you know, what does art mean to you? If you guys create art or if you mostly consume it, what do you guys think? So for me, art
4: means a form of expression, a form of liberation a form of expressing one's emotions in ways that are more effective than your average forms of communication like talking or you know singing or stuff like that and so to me art is liberation in a sense that you can't get anywhere else art is you know a concept that can be constructed in different shapes and forms and so for a person to be able to have that liberation is amazing but also as a consumer seeing all these different mediums of art and expression is really great because you might not not everyone will connect to one piece but what if they watch a play or what if they you know listen to a poem or what if they take an art class right so there's different mediums and there's so much liberty in that
3: to me the art is important we need to especially latino culture needs to kind of encourage our young latino artists because you know what we're never gonna get the movies that we want we're never gonna get the tv shows that we want if we don't encourage the Latino youth who have an interest in the arts, mm-hmm. yeah. you want arts, we need to encourage it.
2: I think that art is just instrumental to to furthering our message. I think there's no greater form of communication than through art, whether that be painting, whether that be poetry. Um, And I love how her artwork is so like the imagery that she uses is so almost visceral because she's very true in what she's talking about, even the really, really difficult things that maybe you can't put into words. I'm someone who has a hard time hard time with words, so it's great knowing that I can seek I, people who know how to express what I'm feeling deep down. And like she mentioned, it's not just her speaking her truth. When I read her works or when anyone else reads what she writes, it's like all this stuff that we never had the ability to say because we couldn't put it together because we maybe don't have that artistic mind of hers. Yeah, we can't articulate. I can't articulate it at all, but she has it. And with that kind of um, talent, of course, you've got to share it.
3: I mean, at the end of the day, like we've we've talked about we need to have these conversations of, you know, these uncomfortable conversations of what's Mm -hmm. going on in, in this political climate and what's going on in our communities. And sometimes it is difficult to articulate it, but, you you know, art that is made by people of color, especially the Latino community, they become tools for us to have this conversation. Yes,
4: they've
2: done that work for us. We should use it.
4: And I think um, Ace Daniels touched upon that. Like, when you humanize someone... It's so much easier to empathize with someone, Mm -hmm. right? And so all the people that we featured on this episode really, like we said, they get it, right? They lived it. We're living it. And it's our responsibility to teach it.
2: Great conversation, guys. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Latinx Voices Unfailed Series. Each episode features smaller parts of larger interviews with community members. These interviews were conducted by research assistants at the Oral History Research Center. To hear these interviews in full, contact UNLV Special Collections and Archives at 702-895-2234. Special thanks to Yoni Kessler for our theme music, and to perform you musicians, Ricardo Arana, Tassos Peltekes, Marshall Peterson, and Spencer Pfeiffer. Audio engineering by Ron George. Production engineering by Kevin Kral. This podcast is a production of KUNV Radio and the UNLV Rebel Media Group.